Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. I'm sure that you've observed at some time this fact that in some ways and at some times, unbelievers behave better than we do as Christians. I hate to admit it, but you've seen it. You know that this is true at times. This is not in any way a denial of the power of the gospel. I know that when the grace of God impacts with your life, then your life changes. And you, many here, your testimony to that, your life is very different. There is a power at work in you, and I'm not denying that whatsoever. However, we are still in process of being sanctified. You can admit that as well. Therefore, there are times in which even lost people in specific circumstances will behave better than those who have been saved. You've observed that. I'm not saying that someone who is lost can do ultimate good in the truest sense of the word because that would require a deed done for the purpose of God being glorified. And you know, because you were not a believer at one time like myself, when we don't know Christ, we don't do things truly for the glory of God. So we can't ultimately do a true good work. That's true. But even as unbelievers, by what's called common grace, that is God's grace given to all people, it's not saving, but common grace can restrain some evil, even in the lost, and produce some sort of good. Are Christians the only ones who jump into perilous waters to save someone who's drowning? No. Are Christians the only ones who have died on a battlefield to preserve the safety of those they love? No. Are Christians the only ones who have gone into the line of fire to rescue a fallen comrade and pull him to safety at risk of their own life? No. Are Christians the only ones in our world who start nonprofits to meet real needs of those in difficult circumstances? Again, no, Christians do those things, but not just Christians. Unbelievers do some of these things too. But you know, even as I say this, perhaps it's made you feel uncomfortable. Why? Because you know Christians ought to be the ones doing these things. We ought to be the ones doing these more than those who don't know Christ. They do them but we should be first in the line of good works in every area of life. We're aware that common grace is still real grace. It can produce some semblance of good in the world. We praise God for it. You've probably been benefited quite a lot by unbelievers doing some sort of good thing, even to your benefit. But the difference between those who are lost and us is we have a million more reasons and a million more resources to do good than our lost neighbors do. For example, the glory of God, the greatest of all motivations possible in the world 
And you have it if you're in Christ. You want God to be glorified so much that I know there are many here who, if necessary, would die by the end of this day to bring God glory, perhaps in standing for the testimony of the gospel before the lions of the Colosseum. You do it. What is the motivation? To glorify your God, your creator, your father, and your maker. Unbelievers don't have that. They do have other motivations. They don't have that motivation, but you do. You have a genuine, true, pure love for others. You didn't have it when you were lost, and you have it now. You have that motivation. Unbelievers can never have a pure and unalloyed sort of love. You are the ones called, in the words of Jesus himself, to be a city set upon a hill. Why? So that the world may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What a motivation to do good works. Unlike the lost, when we do good, we make it our aim, Paul says, to please Christ. An unbeliever doesn't have that. You've got more reasons to pour your life into good works than any lost person on the planet. On top of that, you have more resources than any lost person does. And I'm not talking about physical, material resources. You might not. But you have more of the resources that matter the most. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You are the one who has an inheritance that is laid up in heaven for you that cannot be touched by any earthly finger to taint it. Therefore, you have a present hope for the future. You have that. They don't. You've got that. You are the one who's received power from on high to do the work God sent you to do, mainly to testify to the gospel. But as you do that, to do good works as well. You have that. You have God himself living within you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And your lost co-workers and neighbors and friends and family don't have that. But you do. You have every reason and every resource to have a life that is fueled and characterized by good works in the world. That's what Christ has called you to, that sort of life. We can therefore acknowledge that there are many lost people who do many good works by God's common grace and for ulterior motives, whatever it may be, it's still good work. Relieving the poor, feeding the hungry, helping the homeless find homes, bringing in those who are on the outside, welcoming them in, showing hospitality, giving financially to those who have needs, and on and on and on the list goes. Unbelievers do that and we don't have to deny that or pretend that they're not. They're doing it. But we can also acknowledge that if they're doing it, how much more should we be doing it? They're not the problem. It's not that they need to stop doing good works. It's that we need to start doing more good works. So that when people look at our life, it shouldn't look identical to the lost world. It has to be distinguishable so that when they see our good works, they give glory to our Father who is in heaven. This is, for example, well, you may have a businessman who, as a hobby, buys old cars and fixes them up. He will probably get pretty good at fixing up old cars. But if you have a 
full-time professional mechanic who's invested training and hours and hours of every week, every day, into fixing cars, your expectation should be, well, yes, the businessman, he can fix cars here and there, but he shouldn't be better than the mechanic, or something's wrong with the mechanic, because he's giving his whole life to it. It's his identity. It's who he is. He's a mechanic. So the businessman can fix cars, but the mechanic should know the most about cars. The unbeliever can do good works, but we who are believers, we're professional good work doers. It should be us first. It's the biblical view of what a Christian is. In Jesus' parable, you may remember, the master commends a dishonest manager for his shrewdness, and Jesus comments, For the sons of this world, unbelievers, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. He acknowledges that. It should not be that way. Or again, when Jesus saw the centurion who was not Jewish, exercising faith, he said that he marveled at him. He turns to the crowd and Jesus says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. But it shouldn't be that way. If my lost neighbor is doing more good than I am, meeting more needs, he doesn't need to stop doing so much good. I need to start doing more. I am a Christian. What am I doing? How am I being outdone by lost people? This is my job. This is who I am. We are Christians. We do good. This is the clear emphasis. That's why I mention it. When we come to this sort of second scene in the book of Jonah, Jonah is running from God. God says, go east to Nineveh. Jonah immediately goes west, trying to run away from the presence of the Lord because he doesn't want to do good to the Ninevites. He doesn't want them to repent and be saved because he hates them, as we'll see later. So he goes down to Joppa, gets a boat, and is fleeing westward on the Mediterranean as far as he can toward Tarshish. And that brings us to this rather embarrassing scene in Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What are you doing, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. You tell me, who does better in this text, the prophet of Yahweh or the pagans? The pagans, the prophet sleeping. Who's more virtuous in this small snapshot? Is it the crew of foreigners who might not even know the name of Yahweh? Or is it the prophet who has spent his entire career conveying the message of Yahweh to his people? It's not Jonah. He's doing very poorly. 
Sadly, in this case, those who are far from God are here putting to shame someone who should be very close to God. But you remember from just the first three verses, Jonah doesn't want to be close to God. He has been running away, quote, from the presence of the Lord. So if he looks like he's further from God than even these pagans, sort of his own fault. That's where he wanted to be. But it should not be this way. We can say, brothers and sisters of Jonah, in our text, what James says of us when we are not living up to our calling, quote, these things ought not to be so. Ought not, but sometimes are. That's true of Jonah here. Why should these things not be so? Why should Jonah not be sleeping in the middle of the boat while pagans are crying out to God for help? and trying to save their lives and Jonah's life. And he's oblivious. Why shouldn't it be like this? Because Jonah has every spiritual advantage. And the pagans have almost none. Jonah should be like Paul in the New Testament. Remember when he faced a shipwreck? He was quite in charge of what was going on. He was spiritually minded, and it was through him that all the others were saved. These things ought to be so. But Jonah is the rebellious prophet, because as much as you need a positive example, Paul, in his shipwreck, you and I, as Christians, we need a negative example as well, because sometimes that's us. So God puts Jonah in front of you and says, these things ought not to be so. The pagans are trying to save the prophet. It shouldn't be that way. He's sleeping as he runs away from God in rebellion. It's not a good thing. You and I, we can't just sit at a distance and sort of mock Jonah as he fumbles the ball and the pagans on the other team are the ones running toward the end zone because we do that same thing. We're very much like Jonah. We'll see that as we go along in this book. It's part of the reason we have Jonah is to show us how not to be. Don't be like Jonah in this case either. Oftentimes, we're fumbling the ball. And therefore, we are going to pay careful attention to this text. And we're going to do it from two angles. Uh, first, we're going to focus here on the pagan sailors. Sadly, they're the ones doing what they should do. Not perfectly. There's a lot of ignorance here. But they're presented and will be presented in the coming weeks as doing some good things. They're not Hebrew. They're not part of the people of God. They're pagans worshiping false gods. And yet they're presented to us as doing some good things. Why? So that it's all the more stark when you see the contrast as we turn in this passage and in our sermon from the pagans to the prophet Jonah. And we see that he is the only one not doing good things. He is sleeping. So let's begin then and look at these pagans that are presented to us in the text. Jonah had in fleeing God, we saw last week, gone down to Joppa, which was a pagan or Gentile, non-Jewish port. Then he found a boat probably manned by Phoenicians, non-Jewish, non-people of God people. He gets on the boat, pays his fare, and now he's out at sea. So to the Hebrews who originally would have heard the story of Jonah thousands and thousands of years ago, their view of the people on this boat, the crew, 
these Gentiles, these pagans, would have been very negative, probably. They probably wouldn't have ranked them very high above the Ninevites, the cursed capital of Assyria, who we'll see later. These are people who don't know God. They don't worship Yahweh. They are the enemies of the people of God. And they're all over the boat. And the only protagonist from the Hebrew mind is, of course, the prophet of Yahweh. It's going to be Jonah. He's one of our own. So that's why things get embarrassing. Paul would much later claim concerning the non-Jewish people, in past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. These are the past generations. These Phoenician sailors, they walked in their own ways. They were not the people of God. They worshiped false gods who were no gods. They bowed down before idols, the highest of all Old Testament sins. These were supposed to be the bad guys. And so I'm sure those first Hebrews were just as shocked, more shocked than we are when we look at the bad guys in the text because they're not doing very many bad things. They're doing some good things, though in a very confused way. So look again at this passage, but keep in mind, focus on the behavior of the pagan sailors. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There's a mighty tempest on the sea. The ship threatens to break up. That's the setting. Then we get the pagans. Then the mariners, that's them. They were afraid because they were not sleeping. <laughs> they were awake to see there's a problem. Each one cried out to his God. That's mistaken, but they are praying. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. They're doing something, trying to save their life and Jonah's. And here's Jonah. He had gone down into the inner part of the ship, had lain down, was fast asleep, completely useless and oblivious to the entire circumstance. And so it is the pagan captain on the boat who has to come down, maybe to grab cargo to try to save this poor prophet's life. And there he sees Jonah sleeping. Jonah's only contribution to the bustling that's happening above deck is to send some of his snores up there. I mean, he's doing nothing. He's sleeping. And the captain has to tell him, what are you doing, you sleeper? Get up. You need to start doing what we've already been doing. We're crying out to our gods. Cry out to your God. And maybe, just maybe, your God, the God, will give a thought to us that we may not perish. We're going to see in the weeks that come that these pagan sailors are even better than you thought they were. Because what's going to happen is when Jonah finally gets ousted as the person causing the problem, he tells them, throw me into the sea, your lives will be saved. So you expect them to grab him and throw him real fast. But it will tell us that when they heard this, they rode harder to try to save his life. And then finally, when they throw him over, they pray to the true God and say, don't hold this against us because you've done as you please, acknowledging his sovereignty. <laughs> They're doing a lot of good things. That's very embarrassing. I kind of jokingly like to say that the book of Jonah is the book where everybody did what God said except the prophet. Because you have, even in this, at the very beginning in verse 4, God wants to hurl a wind and the wind doesn't rebel. The wind goes and causes a tempest. 
We're going to see that God will appoint a fish and the fish obeys and goes and saves Jonah. God is going to call to the Ninevites to repent and they're going to do it. Even the Ninevites are going to do it. The east wind will obey when God sends it in chapter 4. The plant that shades Jonah will obey when God tells it to grow. The bug that eats the plant will obey when God sends it to eat the plant. Jonah's the only guy not obeying in the entire book of Jonah. And even here, these pagan sailors who worship false gods, even they fear God. And even in our text, before they even know God, they're at least trying to do the right thing. They are putting Jonah to shame. Now, the reason they're putting Jonah to shame is because Think about all the disadvantages that these pagan sailors have. First, the extreme disadvantage of worshiping false gods. It's the worst disadvantage there is in all of life. Verse 5, then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. See the little g? It's because it's not the true God, but that's their God's. In 1 Corinthians 10 verse 20, Paul says that what the pagans, aka these guys, sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. In the ancient world, much like certain parts of the, country, or the world today, India for example, people would have personal gods, you would have family gods, you would have national gods, etc., etc., Paul says that those gods that were worshipped in the ancient world, and we may imagine even today in parts of the world, when people offer sacrifices to these idols, the idols are nothing, but the god behind the idols is actually a demon. Well, that's a disadvantage because demons don't love you. Demons don't love these sailors. The sailors in our text are crying out to demons, please pity us and spare us. Demons are limited in their power and nil in their love for you. That's a disadvantage to have those as your gods. That's what they have. In fact, it's clear that their prayers are not working because down in verse 11, we'll see that the sea grew more and more tempestuous, not less and less. These are like the prophets of Baal in the Old Testament when they had a contest with Elijah and the true God. They cried out, O Baal! Answer us. And the very sad next statement made by the author of 1 Kings is, but there was no voice and no one answered. That's these pagan sailors. They had the disadvantage of worshiping demons. On top of this, even in their worship, they had the disadvantage of ignorance. See this all-important word employed by the captain here in verse 6, when he finally comes across the sleepy prophet, what are you doing? What do you mean, you sleeper? Get up, call out to your God. Here's the word. Perhaps. Life and death hang in the balance. They will either drown quite terribly or survive. The only hope they have, these pagans, is this. Maybe. Maybe the God. Notice the God. They don't even know who the God is. Maybe this God that you probably worship in your nation will give a thought to us that we may not perish. That's not strong Christian hope in the face of death. That is a pagan's, perhaps, life or death situation. 
maybe some deity will pity us. Undoubtedly, the same would apply for them in their view of the afterlife. Even if they were to die, then what comes next? And all the ancient religions had ideas about this, so these pagans probably had quite a similar conception of what life would be if they did drown. Will the gods have mercy on us and not torture us forever, but grant us some kind of happiness? Uh, maybe. The most important question that any person asks it's not, it's not about your life here, it's what comes after, because that lasts a lot longer. And the only hope that these pagans have is maybe some god somewhere who perhaps has control over other gods and our eternal destiny may see that we're in trouble, deliver us so that we don't perish. And many here know Christ and have a confident hope in him. But I don't doubt that there are some even here right now or who listen to this message at some point. And that's your hope too. If you don't have a solid hope in the true God presented in Scripture through Christ, then you have a perhaps. You have what the pagans had and no more. Will you experience an eternity of joy in the presence of your Creator? If you don't know the Christ of Scripture, you have only this. Maybe. And it's no way to live your life. Perhaps the God will give a thought and we will be spared. I was speaking only just yesterday with a friend of mine who is very liberal leaning in his theology. Since the Bible's been interpreted in so many different ways, it seems that his view is you can never really know any interpretation of the Bible as truth. There are truths not one truth when you read the Bible, or you'll never know it. It's too mysterious. It's too dark, too deep. The only thing that this friend of mine has is a perhaps when it comes to the most important questions of life. That is the very sad situation that these pagans are in, and you see it in the captain's words. These are the disadvantages that the pagans have. False gods that are demons that they're crying out to, and even there, they're not sure who is the real God, who will deliver us. All the disadvantages. And yet, this is why this passage is shocking. Look at their energy especially compared to Jonah, who's snoozing. Jonah contributes nothing, and meanwhile, the pagans are doing much better than Jonah. Number one, they're afraid. That may seem bad. Okay, it is. But their fear is better than Jonah's lack of fear. The only reason Jonah's not afraid is because he is watching dreams. He doesn't know what's actually going on. Jonah, in this case, may have greater knowledge about the divine, about God, who he's interacted with as a prophet, but when it comes to the earthly circumstance they're in in that moment, the pagans actually know a lot better than he does. They're awake, he's asleep. They cry out to their gods, which again, that's bad, that's idolatry, but look, at least they're praying. Jonah hasn't prayed for some time now, I imagine. He's been running away from his god. They are actually working hard to save Jonah along with themselves, and he's doing nothing. And in this great act of irony in this passage, the captain goes downstairs 
and the pagan has to wake the prophet up. That's embarrassing. These pagans, when they pray to their gods, are praying on the basis of nothing but the slimmest, barest, most slender basis of a perhaps. That's all they have. And yet, on that basis, they are crying out to God, saying, save us. And there is the prophet asleep. He knows the true God. He's communicated with him in some way as a prophet. He knows him, and he's the only one on the boat not praying because he's asleep. It's true that... Um, the sailors are motivated by self-interest. So it's not the most noble. They don't want to drown. But look, Jonah's motivated by self-interest too. And at least their self-interest turns them upward toward God, whereas his is taking him down away from him. So why all of this about the pagans? Why present to you just how good they do despite their many disadvantages? It's because the author of Jonah wants to highlight for you how bad Jonah is <laughs> as we turn now from the pagans to the prophet. They're really just a backdrop for us to think about Jonah here. Jonah is a lot like you and me right now. Jonah has innumerable advantages, spiritually speaking. Here's the first one. He actually worships God. The God, spoken of by the captain, is the actual God. He'll say this in verse 9. I am a Hebrew, he'll admit, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. It is an advantage to worship someone who's actually there and not a demon. You agree with that? Of course you agree with that. That's the advantage that Jonah has. Here are the pagans crying out to their God and Elijah the prophet could have said to them what he said to the worshipers of Baal. Cry aloud, he's a God. Either he's musing, he's relieving himself, he's on a journey, maybe he's asleep and has to be awakened. He's mocking them. Their God isn't there and doesn't care. They're not gods and yet Jonah worships the true God, the God who is there. You know that the God's there because you saw him in verse 4. Here's the actual God that Jonah worships. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Should I use this maybe? Can I get this on? We'll make this work. All right, much better. If Jonah were running away from the pagans' gods, the mere demons, he could have gotten away, probably. He probably would have gotten away. The problem was the god that Jonah was fleeing from was this god of verse 4, the Lord who had control over nature itself. There's so much communicated to us in this passage in that blank space between verse 3 and verse 4 because notice both of them talk about the Lord. But in verse 3, the Lord is the object of a preposition, if you care about grammar, but he is an object. Jonah's the main character. He's running away from the Lord. But then, this is what always happens when you run away from the Lord. Verse 4 interjects, but 
the Lord hurled a wind upon the sea. You cannot run away. Jonah serves an actual God, has that immense advantage, but he's the one who is sleeping on this boat. He's the one who has to hear the words, get up, call out to your God. Should already have been doing it. What is more, not only does he worship and serve a true God, but Jonah is not perhapsing his way along. He has a certainty about what is true. The problem in the book of Jonah is not about Jonah's lack of understanding of what's true. The problem is actually he knows exactly what's true and he doesn't want it and he doesn't live according to it. Jonah was a Jewish person. He'll tell us next week he was a Hebrew. And so it could be said of him what Paul said at the beginning of Romans 3. Then what advantage has this Jew, Jonah? Or what is the value of circumcision? And Paul answers, much in every way. Why? First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Jonah, as a prophet, had literally received communication from the one and only creator of the universe, knew his name as Yahweh, had lived as his servant. That's his advantage over against the captain on the ship who knows nothing more than perhaps the God. Jonah is at a great advantage. Because of this passage, because of God's treatment of Jonah as a Jewish person here, you can have confidence that you, even you, can be a Christian. Because think of it, we've been talking about advantages and disadvantages here. Why is it that Jonah, the worst person in our text, has all the advantages? And these, the pagan sailors, and soon the Ninevites, have almost none of the advantages. Why has God been so gracious to Jonah? Why was he born in the land of promise? Why was he called out to be a prophet of the Most High God and to be entrusted with the oracles of God? Why was salvation to be set before him? Why will he be delivered from the fish? Sorry to give that away. It's coming up in the next chapter. Why does that happen to Jonah? And after reading these three verses, you cannot answer because Jonah was a good guy. Jonah's not a good guy. Jonah's not a good prophet. But God had chosen Jonah just as he'd chosen his people, the Jewish people, for special blessing. In fact, this is what God said through Moses when he was speaking of the Jewish people. He says in Deuteronomy, it was not because you were more in number than any other people the Lord set his love on you and chose you. Why does God choose the Hebrews of which Jonah's a part rather than the Phoenicians? Not because you are a greater people, for you are the fewest of all peoples. Well, then why is it? Why is God favoring Jonah? It is because the Lord loves you. Why does the Lord love you? It is because the Lord loves you. Did you see that in that passage? Why is Jonah the protagonist of this text? Why is he chosen as a prophet? Why does God deliver him from the belly of the fish and still send him to Nineveh? Why is he still to this day regarded as a prophet of Israel? Why is it his book bearing his name that's in our Bible? Because God 
loved his people and loved him. I'm not going to guess on Jonah's spiritual state, probably a true believer. We don't know what happens after chapter 4. He doesn't repent in this book. But he has every advantage simply because God chose to give him every advantage. This is true of you and me as well. You and I many times are just like Jonah there in the bottom of the boat. We can be an embarrassment. But the hope that we have is God's mercy. He has shown us his grace. Romans chapter 9, many are familiar with, and there Paul explains just like Moses had, why God showed mercy to the Jewish people, why he shows mercy to those who trust in Christ today. God says to Moses, Paul says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion. It depends on God who has mercy. That's why Jonah is saved. That's why Jonah has all the advantages he does. Jonah is not a magnet pulling the favor of God to himself by his own worth and merit. If anything, he's a magnet turned the wrong way, compelling it away. And yet God, in his mercy, chooses to be gracious to Jonah as a prophet of his people, Israel. God has chosen weak, rebellious, stubborn Jonah to receive blessing upon blessing. And this is our hope too. This is the hope that we have. Even as we look at this negative example in Jonah, we cannot forget God does spare him. He is still God's prophet despite all of his failures. Jonah is set before you, even here in this text, to show you, to prove to you the patience of God. He is an example of Christ's infinite patience toward those who believe in him. You may be here feeling like you cannot be a genuine Christian, or if you can, you can't be a, one of those serious Christians who really live for the Lord and leave a lasting legacy of influence through evangelism, through good works. You feel like you can't be that because you struggle with fill in the blank. Listen, if Jonah can be a prophet... You can be a Christian. It's part of the purpose of Jonah. You may find that just like with Jonah, there are persons around you who are not believers and they're better than you. You ever notice that sometimes? You might have neighbors who are friendlier than you. You might have people in your life, family or other, who don't know Christ. You want to share the gospel with them. And yet they seem so calm and composed and you're racked with anxieties. You may feel like you cannot be a testimony. You cannot be a, like Caleb talked about, a sort of mouthpiece for Christ. If Jonah can, you can. Because of the mercy of God. And yet, as we draw to a close, we can't end there on that soft note, important as it is. There is one more application that you have to draw from this passage, and you've already seen it coming. And it is really found in the cry of the captain in verse 6. What are you doing? You sleeper. And God could say the same to you, asleep in the hole of the boat. What are you doing? Look, see the unbelievers in your life? You see them around you? Do you see them meeting important needs? You see some of them who are eager to give of their time, to give of their money, to give of their very life, to meet the needs of those who are suffering. You see that? 
You see that? You see those who come alongside others who are suffering or having a difficult time? And these are unbelievers coming alongside and offering some comfort and encouragement. They don't even know the God, the true God, your God. You do. What are you doing? This is a call to get up. And if a pagan has to say it to us, we have to be humble enough to receive that, as Jonah did. Jonah, get up. What are you doing, the true prophet of Yahweh? And here you are asleep, living your life in social media, entertainment media. It may have been that at some point in your Christian walk, you were quite a zealous doer of good. You were eager to meet any need. You had seen such a radical change in your life, but you know that as time goes along, and perhaps you've been hurt over time, or maybe it's been the tense climate of our country or the church or whatever, and you, like a turtle, pull your head into your shell, no longer are you as eager to get involved in the lives even of believers, much less of unbelievers, who we consider perhaps political enemies or a threat to whatever. And here comes a pagan to say, what are you doing in your shell? Get out! You are a Christian. You, as a prophet of Yahweh here, is rebuked. So for you, you need to get out. You need to get your hands messy, involved in the lives of other people. Paul says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those of the household of the faith. And sometimes we are guilty of cutting out the very middle. As we have opportunity, let's do good to the household of the faith. That's a little bit safer. It's a little bit comfier, but that is not what Paul says. If we are really to be a city set upon a hill, even if now we feel like Jonah asleep in the bottom of the boat, rebuked even by the good deeds done by lost persons, if we're to be a city set upon a hill or the salt of the earth, if that's supposed to be our description and not our lost friends and neighbors, then let us be a city set upon a hill. Commit yourself now under the grace of Christ that this will be your life, not even just a part of what your life will be, but this will be your life. Commit yourself that you will not be like Jonah. You are probably aware that in the history of Christianity in America, especially over the last hundred or so years, because we've had to fight against, just like my friend is, a liberalism that denies the core tenets of Scripture, because we've spent so much time fighting against that, which is important and good, we have at times distanced ourselves from the doing of good works. But that's not right. We can, like Jonah, be entrusted with the oracles of God, and unlike Jonah, get up. It was Spurgeon in London, that great preacher in the late 1800s, himself battling against liberalism as it came into the world from Germany. It was Spurgeon who, when he spoke of the atheist societies in London, he could dismiss them on the basis of good works and say, what good works have the atheist societies done in our city? Whereas, in contrast, look at the Christians. They have started orphanages. And quoting Elijah in the Old Testament, he said, the God who answers by orphanages, let him be God. And so may it be, if you needed this awakening from Jonah today, if you've retreated into your shell, if you are hiding from the big bad people out there in the world, the big bad people out in the world are your purpose for being here so that they don't have to do good to you. Christ has done that so that you can do good to them.
So may God grant that we get up and cry out to our God and do good. Let's pray. Lord, my appeal for us as your people is that you would give us a a repentance for any ways in which we have lacked the zeal that your name deserves in our doing of good, in our meeting of needs. Forgive us for the ways we feel the needs of others as no more than an inconvenience. I pray that you would help us joyfully and gladly to pour ourselves into good works. We are of all people most free only Grant that we not use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but that through love we might serve one another. Thank you very much for the awakeness that you have granted here in this body, the many good deeds that take place. Our prayer is that you would help us to excel still more, that people would see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. It's in your name we pray. Amen.